Welcome to the Laura Plantation Podcast. Laura Plantation provides a cultural experience unlike any other in the United States. Here you will find the difference that exemplifies Creole Louisiana. Explore the rigors of 200 years of daily life along with the sobering experience of slavery as it happened at one historic site on the banks of the Mississippi River in the middle of New Orleans plantation country. In this podcast, historian Katie Morlaw-Shannon and director of PR and marketing Joseph Dunn will be your guides into the Creole world, offering you true, personal, compelling stories of the people who lived, worked, and died at this unique historic site. Real history about real people. Bonjour, everyone, and welcome back to the Laura Plantation podcast. In this episode, Joseph, that's me, will be talking with Dr. Angel Adams Parham about her research into the Haitian refugee community in early 19th century New Orleans, how slavery and enslavement are represented at plantations and in urban spaces, and the importance of preserving and talking about buildings and stories that reveal Louisiana's connection to Africa and African history. Dr. Parham is Associate Professor of Sociology and Senior Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. Before moving to Virginia, she spent a number of years at Loyola University in New Orleans, where she chaired the African and African American Studies program. She works in the area of historical sociology, engaging in research and writing that examine the past in order to better understand how to live well in the present and envision wisely for the future. To learn more about Dr. Parham's work, visit her website at angelparham.com. That's angel, P-A-R-H-A-M.com. Good evening, Angel. It's good to see you. Uh, I want to go ahead and introduce you right quick because I pulled this off of your website, angelparum.com, for our listeners and viewers who are not familiar with who you are. So you're the Associate Professor of Sociology and a Senior Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia, and you have previously been a professor at Loyola University here in New Orleans. And for a number of years, you were the chair of the African and African-American Studies program at Loyola. Uh, You've got a number of publications under your belt, and uh, I'm particularly interested to chat with you this evening uh, about some of the work that you did with Clint Bruce on the Afro-Creole poetry in French from Louisiana's Radical Civil War era newspapers. And you are the first guest on the Laura Plantation Real People Real History podcast. So welcome to to this evening and thank you so much for for joining me for a chat tonight. Wow, I had no idea that this was an inaugural interview, so I am very honored. Thanks for the invitation. I am delighted. Well, you know, you and I got to spend some time together um in in France this past summer in June at a uh, an international colloquium on the relationship between Bordeaux in France and France in general and Louisiana. And a lot of those conversations uh, turned around the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, we're also talking about the influences of Africans and African culture in New Orleans. And you've been sort of at the forefront, really, in the academic stage of bringing a lot of that forward into conversations, not only in the academic field, but also 
also sort of just on the ground with cultural institutions, notably your most recent work with the African-American Museum in Treme in New Orleans. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that and what led you to New Orleans in the first place and how you got interested in, in this particular story? Sure. So my interest in New Orleans started uh, 20 years ago, precisely, in 2003. Uh, So I was lucky enough to get the job at Loyola University in New Orleans. And before I got to New Orleans, I had been working on the Haitian community, on the contemporary Haitian immigrant community, you know, kind of 1970s through um, 90s or so. And so it, what's so fascinating, Joseph, is is how much New Orleans really shaped the kind of scholar and person I've become. So I lived there and worked there for 18 years before moving to Virginia, where I am right now. So I arrive in New Orleans in 2003, um, a very young PhD. And when I got there, the chair of my department said, you know, there's a historic Haitian community in New Orleans. You should look into that. And it's, you know, kind of like the the the, the tiny sentence with huge life implications. Um, because I thought, oh, that's interesting. Well, yeah, I think I will look into that. And of course, as you know, there's a, a, a huge influence um, from Haiti um, going back to the, the 18th and 19th centuries in Louisiana. And so in my first book, that's what I ended up looking at. I looked at um, migrations and refugees from the Haitian Revolution coming to New Orleans. And you know there were just absolutely large migrations, one of which nearly doubled the population of New Orleans and had an enormous um, long-term cultural and um, racial impact on that city. And so that was the very beginning of of, of really reorienting my scholarship and turning me from doing more contemporary work, although I do still do some contemporary work, but I do a lot more historical work now, and that is because of New Orleans. And, you know, as you know, history lies heavily on the streets um, of New Orleans, right? Um, it's, It's just everywhere. And that has been very much um, what has shaped the trajectory of what I've been doing. That's uh, Was this a real discovery for you? Or had you heard about this connection to Haiti before? Or was it a, a whole new world that opened up to you? So that's a really good question, Joseph. And I know I knew intellectually, right? You know, I, I know I knew there was a con- connection. So it wasn't entirely new. But I'll put it this way. Um, The first time I ever went to New Orleans was for the interview. And when I got there and I was staying near the French Quarter and I was driven around the city and through the French Quarter, and I had never seen a place with the kind of architecture of New Orleans or the kind of feel of New Orleans, I, I literally said to myself, I can't believe this exists in the United States. So I just, I had not been prepared for what I saw and the feel of the place. And I in, instantly fell in love with it. So the Haitian connection, again, you know, I know I had been reading um, just 
I, I had read at least one, you know, in the course of doing my more contemporary Haitian work, I had read kind of on the side about the connection to Louisiana and to New Orleans, but it really didn't register until I was there and living there and talking to descendants of those waves of migration and people talking about their ancestors, you know, as if they had had face-to-face conversations with them, you know, and so it just brings things alive in a very different way than just intellectually knowing that there's a historical connection. That's fascinating. So this brings me to a question that I was going to ask you anyway, um, as as an academic and also as someone who can sometimes separate this sort of a more academic piece of something from a lived experience thing. And as a sociologist, you can see how those things can be separate, but also intersect. Um, would you say, because there, there are lots of arguments now, I think, in the academic community about whether New Orleans and Louisiana are exceptional or whether they're not. And I sort of go back and forth about that. What do you say about that? Yeah, it's one of those trick questions, I think. Um, I guess it's cheating to say it's a little bit of both, but let, let me say this. So New Orleans is unusual in that it was under the French and the Spanish and the Anglo-Americans. Um, and so you don't, you know, that's that's a very unusual history. And because of the particular um, colonial practices and cultural practices of the French and the Spanish, it, it leaves you with a heavier cultural imprint, um, particularly of Africans. Um, who were living there under the French and the Spanish. For instance, you know, the fact that the the drum was not um, abolished immediately under the French and the Spanish um, has meant something very significant in terms of cultural traditions, musical traditions, and so on in New Orleans that you can hear and you can see in ways that it's harder to trace back quite so directly in um, areas that were under the English. Um, and so you you get some exceptions there. But on the other hand, there's a very curious way in which New Orleans really, um, really is a place that shows what is American um, in terms of the layering of cultural traditions. You know, so consider, for instance, that there are many other parts of the contemporary United States that were Spanish before they were Anglo-American, right? You know, much of the West was, um, Florida was, and we tend to forget that and, and not really think about that, right? Mm. Um, and so there's a way in which the Anglo story has come to kind of just overlay and stand in for the American experience. You know, it's as if Plymouth extended itself over everything, you know, over all um, 50 states. And to a certain extent, culturally, that is true. But this is why I use the image of the palimpsest in my first book. Um, and so the palimpsest, you know, many people say, I never knew this word in, until I read it in the book. So just to explain, a palimpsest occurs where you've got one layer 
of say paint or writing. And then you've got another layer placed on top of it, but you can still see the previous layer underneath. So that is that top layer doesn't completely cover it over. So for those in the audience who do historical research, who do archival research, you know you will find sometimes um, these documents where you've got kind of a faint layer of, of writing underneath a stronger layer of writing. Um, and that's what a palimpsest is. Uh, and so there's a very real way in which much of the country, well beyond New Orleans in the United States, is a kind of palimpsest. You, you can see this a little more, I think, in the Western United States, where there's still more of a Spanish influence there, architecturally, culturally, and so on. And then you, you have that Anglo layer over on top. You can see that in terms of, I think, um, at least I argue, certainly in New Orleans and in other parts of Louisiana, in terms of understandings of race, where you have this, you know, you still have a little bit of the, um, a little bit of this kind of, of, of Creole sense of three tiers um, of, of racial identity. Um, and that is still there underneath a dominant Anglo layer that is just black and white, right? And so I would argue that um, New Orleans really is very American in that sense. It's just that we don't really bring out that layered sense of what it means to be American. Um, we tend to just kind of focus on that Anglo layer and tell the story that way. And we, we don't really kind of probe beneath that. Um, for instance, Clementine Hunter, I will never forget, you know, um, I had been living in New Orleans for a while. I, I, I love the work of Clementine Hunter. And as I was reading about her finding that she has Creole roots, you know, and that is just not part of what comes through the story. You know, if you're I think for the most part, for people living outside of Louisiana who aren't getting a kind of Louisiana-based version of her story, that's not what's gonna come through. Um, the Plessy case is another one. I've heard of the Plessy case pretty much my whole life. It wasn't until I came to New Orleans and was in Treme, where so many of the organizers of the Plessy case lived, you know, and they were the Comité de Citoyenne, um, and that is just not part of what's told in the larger national story. Those earlier layers, those French layers, those Haitian layers, they, they just don't come through. And so in that sense, I think New Orleans is more honest about the layered aspects of American history and identity. Mentioning Clementine Hunter and mentioning Plessy, Omer Adolphe Plessy, as I like to say his name, instead of Homer Plessy, mm -hmm. this does sort of bring that question up also about, uh, I, I would guess, I think I might be trying to say consolidation of identity labels for Afro-descended people under the term African-American, which then, in, in my view, erases in many ways, I think the cultural and linguistic identity of of Afro Creoles. How do you how do you see that in the work that you do? Yeah, so I want to be really careful here. First of all, to say that 
this, I will answer this in terms of what I saw coming out of my research. And so the answer is from the people that I spoke to and not my answer myself. And I, I, I make that distinction just because there are so many sensitivities around this issue. And I am not from Louisiana originally. Uh, you know, I am not of Creole descent. Um, I am Anglo-African-American from outside of Louisiana. So it's not for me to pronounce on that question. So I just want to be really clear about that, that what I share is kind of just what I found from what people told me from their experiences. And so I found um, several different ways of, of positioning the self with respect to that. Um, so I, I found some people when I did oral histories, um, and this was, was often older um, Creoles of color who said, you know, um, for a long time, there was this sense that um, when I was raised, it was made really clear that we were not black, that we were not African-American. And I would say Anglo-African-American, that we were Creoles, right? Um, and that there's a clear distinction between Af between being African-American and being Creole or being American and being Creole. And then they said, but at a certain point, um, especially during the 60s, with the rise of the civil rights movement and then later on the black power movement, there was a real reconceptualization amongst many Creoles of color, especially those who were college aged at the time, who said, you know, why aren't we black? You know, aren't we part of this larger discussion? You know, haven't we also suffered racial discrimination? Um, shouldn't we be politically allied with this larger black movement that is going on? And some during that time actually began to kind of suppress a Creole identity and to reconsider themselves as black or African-American. And then it was later on, you know, decades later that those same people said, you know what, I don't need to completely suppress. Um, and the reason that what they told me is that they had suppressed identifying as Creole because of the politics around it, because of the way this was perceived by African-Americans who felt like, well, you're just trying to distance yourself from us because you think you're better than us, All right? And later on, you know, as there's been a resurgence in a focus on Creole identity since the 1980s or so, there's been a much more positive coming back. So that's not so much, heck no, we're not black. <laughs> and it's more, well, what we love the richness of our history and our language and our culture. And it's not about trying to not be black. It's about just appreciating what it means to be Creole. So I think there's been a real kind of shift um, in various ways. And so then that's kind of the whole spectrum. And then you have some people who've stayed at one or the other end of that spectrum over time. And then you have younger people, I think, who are perhaps a little more comfortable saying that, well, we're both Black and Creole. You know, it doesn't have to kind of be this polarized choice between the two of them. So that's that's what I've heard. It is it is a, a tricky subject to navigate with people. and and. You know, since I'm at at Laura, we're really dealing with the historic aspects of these identities and how there was this conflict between 
Creoles of all colors as French and Creole speaking Catholics versus Protestant English speaking Americans of all colors, be they free, enslaved or white or black. Um, and it's it's sometimes really interesting, I find, and what over in my experience over years trying to find these definitions for Creole, especially in a historic context, it's sometimes I find easier to say what Creoles were not historically, and I think they did not see themselves as American. At least that's what I get out of uh, the readings and uh, especially the, the French language documents and and letters and literature and how these people were trying to navigate in this this world where English-speaking Americans were were coming in and completely rearranging everything that they had known previously. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and this was kind of a, a knockdown drag out fight throughout the 19th century. What is Creole? Um, and it's still got a lot of punch going now. Um, but I, I think it was it was even more um of a kind of um existential issue in the 19th century just because there was so much at stake. And that distinction of Creole being not American is, you know, perhaps kind of the starkest definition. And there, there are, you know, there are more nuanced um, aspects of it. But once you get the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, and you have the Anglo-American administration trying to come in and kind of Anglo-Americanize, um, one of the things that they try to Anglo-Americanize is race relations, Right. They are stymied in this by the 1809 migration, which bring which nearly doubles the population of refugees fleeing the Haitian Revolution who had gone first to eastern Cuba and then to New Orleans. And so that migration, in addition to nearly doubling the population in general, more than doubles the population of free people of color and makes the entire city much more heavily black than it had been before, but also much more French and Creole than it had been before, right? And so that pushes back Anglo-Americanization by another generation or so, but it doesn't stop the Anglo-Americans from suspecting very strongly that anyone who professes to be Creole is really mixed race and really has the quote unquote taint of African blood somewhere along the line, right? Because rather than Creole being something that was a cultural identity or um, those who are born in the Americas of, of, of French or Creole descent, what Anglo-Americans see is, oh, you know, these are people who perhaps they look white, but they seem to be willing to mix in the open with people of African descent. Of course, they were doing the same thing, you know, in Anglo-American communities, but they, they were just much more cache about it, right? You know, you kind of hide it, right? You know, it's this, this thing to be off to the side. Whereas um, you were more likely to find, you, you also had some hiding, you know, certainly in French Louisiana, but you were more likely to find that there were, um, French or Creole fathers who were white, who did own their children, not, not own as in buy them, but, you know, just publicly say, this is my child and educate them. And, you know, and so for Anglo-Americans, this was just inconceivable 
you're going to really recognize and educate and promote your mixed race child out there in public like that, well, you must be partly black too. Um, and so this means that Creole takes on um, throughout the, the 19th century, this there's this kind of shadow over it, um, according to Anglo-Americans as, as being somewhat mixed race or, or, or definitely mixed race. And you see this certainly with the Grandissimes, um, with George Washington Cable's novel, which comes out in, in 1880 or 1881. And that was very popular throughout the entire United States. It was a serialized story, and I won't ruin it for our listeners, but suffice it to say, it's a pretty wicked commentary on Creole Louisiana, and it strongly suggests that all of the Creoles are really black to some degree. Well, and the the quote unquote white Creole establishment hated Cable for that. It was Absolutely. quite the scandal. It was quite the scandal in the during the Reconstruction period, during the immediate uh, post Reconstruction period, that this idea was was coming forward. I want to talk about some of the things that we discussed in our lengthy conversations when we were in uh, Bordeaux this past summer, because. A lot of the conversations, as I mentioned earlier, came back to this idea of the slave trade and came back to representations of slavery on plantations generally. And we also chatted a little bit about how slavery is represented or it is not in urban spaces. And that's something that's become really important, I think, for us to talk about, especially given that at plantation sites, as historic sites, uh, we're seeing declining visitation at historic sites generally throughout the United States. There was a recent New York Times article about declining visitation at Williamsburg. Uh, cultural sites like the Guggenheim have also been profiled uh, in, I think it was the Washington Post recently. But historic sites generally are seeing declining visitation and plantations as um, their, with their association with the difficult history of slavery are seeing even more rapidly declining visitations. And it's in my observation, and perhaps it's it's incorrect, but plantations seem to bear all of the responsibility for the transparency of of slavery. But urban spaces, to me, in my observation, seem to be exempted from that level of transparency. And mm. um I would like your take on that as far as perhaps New Orleans goes, because we've seen some some controversy and conflict about uh, plantations as accommodations, plantations as sites for events and weddings. But that same regard is not put on a French Quarter courtyard, for example, which is equally a site of enslavement or uh, the St. Louis Cathedral, for example, which was equally a site of enslavement. I'd, I'd really like to hear your your thoughts about that. Yeah, I think this is a really important point, um, Joseph. And so, you know, this resonates quite a bit because um, one of the sites on, on the current book project that I'm working on is the Herman Grima House, which has recently um, done a, a thorough reinterpretation um, of the house and has a completely new tour as of the last couple of years which is now devoted to urban enslavement, you know, and, and which is just so unusual, right? Um, and that tour is actually doing very well. And I think part of the reason is because it's so unexpected for people, right? You know, just like you're saying, you 
the the kind of in the the popular imagination, slavery is kind of restricted to the plantation. Um, and you know, think Gone with the Wind, and you know, all all these kind of um, iconic representations of slavery are on the plantation. And so the idea of urban enslavement um, seems to be an oxymoron. You know, urban enslavement. What what would that have been, right? Um, and I think what is going on here is that the urban spaces. Um, so even when we think about what the experience of enslavement would have been in an urban area, there, there was a different kind of mobility um, for enslaved people in urban areas, right? And there were different kinds of incentives for, um, for white owners in terms of how they treated enslaved people and how much mobility they needed to give them in urban areas in order to run errands and, and do various things. So I'm thinking, for instance, about Frederick Douglass and his narrative. He talks about how, so he went from being um, in rural slavery to being in Baltimore in urban slavery. And he talks about how um, he saw that the, for the most part, the enslaved people in Baltimore had nicer clothes and, you know, there, there wasn't, there was more of a stigma against beating enslaved people um, in the urban area, but this isn't because the white people were suddenly nicer in the urban area, right? You know, there's more social pressure, there's more peer pressure, um, there's more of a focus on appearances and keeping up appearances, and so there's a reason to invest more in the clothing of enslaved people, to be more careful about leaving physical blemishes and so forth, right? Because there's a kind of status ranking amongst white people, you know, in the urban areas. That's a little different than if you are the sole plantation for miles around, right? Um, so there, there are some differences there that make it per, make um, the history of enslavement perhaps less legible um, to the everyday eye. That said, however, I think this, what you're putting your finger on is part of a larger issue that I'm trying to explore in the book that I'm working on right now. And that is that there, these histories are hidden in plain sight. Um, sometimes they are marked, often they are not marked. And we do not have really good um, practices or rituals for um, living in our spaces, in our urban spaces in particular, in ways that help us to be aware of what the histories of those spaces are. Unless there is a specific monument at the, at the place, we have not really been trained to ask those questions about what, you know, what is it that was here before? How did this particular building or incarnation of the space come to be? And I understand that because it's not, you know, it's not something that you would do unless you were invited to do it. And so that's what I'm actually doing in this book, which I'm tentatively calling Reckoning and Reconciliation, is so I choose um, three sites to look at over 300 years. And so use those urban sites as a lens for looking at continuity and change in race, gender, and power. 
And what I'm trying to invite the reader to do is to ask these questions, to think about, you know, what is it, what were some of the previous layers here? And if, if you would indulge me um, with a story Please. that just um, brings, I think, home why it's so crucial to ask some of these questions. So 20 years ago, I had just gotten to New Orleans. It was my first wedding anniversary. And so my husband and I booked a bed and breakfast in St. Francisville. Okay, so we know really nothing about New Orleans or Louisiana or anything. So we go to St. Francisville. The um, bed and breakfast is organized into a series of little cottages, very cute cottages. So we find our cottage and the next morning we're going to have our breakfast because it's a bed and breakfast. And so we leave the cottage and we go, um, there's kind of a slight incline to go up to the house, the larger house where the breakfast is going to be served. So we walk in, we're the only ones there. And the woman who is making our breakfast is um, a middle-aged black woman. So since um, we're the only three people there, we strike up a conversation with her and you might imagine our um, our horror upon learning that not only were we on the side of a plantation for our first anniversary, but we were being served our breakfast by a descendant of that very plantation. Um, and so her ancestors had been enslaved on the plantation where she was now working and serving us breakfast. It was a stunning thing to find this out in such an unexpected way. Um, we might have decided maybe to stay there anyway if we had known the full history of the place and we might not have. Um, it troubles me to think that we, if we hadn't struck up a conversation, we might never have learned that at all. Um, I've had similar other kinds of experiences staying um, in places that were historic that I only later figured out were historic. Um, on a family vacation in um, St. Augustine, Florida, we went back to the same place a year later to stay in the same neighborhood because we liked the neighborhood. And I said, shame on me. I didn't look into the history of this place the last time we stayed here. So let me do it this time. So I found out that we were living in what used to be a historic black neighborhood. Um, and so it used to be a site of free blacks and you know it was a flourishing site post-emancipation. Um, and it had recently become um, prey to very, very aggressive gentrification. And so actually our renting of the Airbnb was part of this whole process of gentrification. And this was our second summer there, right? Um, you know, and, and and so here we are as, you know, kind of middle-class- Un Unwilling children. unwilling participants in the- There you go. <laughs> unwilling participants in the gentrification and the loss of property in this historic black community. And it's only because I finally said, you know, I should know better. I do historical work. You know, I had my experience at the the the, the plantation, you know, 20 years ago, why don't I do a Google search? It wasn't hard to find. 
And so this is why I'm saying, you know, to your point about urban areas being just, you know, we kind of just give it a pass. We just don't really think about it. Um, and it doesn't mean that we wouldn't necessarily redo everything about our everyday lives, but we might redo some things, right? We, we might make different kinds of decisions. Um, we might put up more historical markers so other people know about what's going on. Um, so there's a, a level of self of historical self-consciousness, but it's not just about the history. It's, it's not just about, oh, you should know your history. Of course we should know our history, but that history is directly relevant to how we live today, right? So in that community in St. Augustine, there's a very public conversation that needs to happen about gentrification and loss of cultural tradition and a historic African-American neighborhood right? It's not just about the history. It's about how are we going to make better decisions today? Yeah. And it's hard to make those better decisions today um, if we don't know the history and we don't know the significance of what's going on. Um, and so for that reason, um, I do think some more self-consciousness about the places we go to have coffee or go to vacation or go to work every day, um, having some way to peel away those layers and ask those questions is incredibly important. Oh, and you having worked at Loyola, which is on the site of uh, Etienne de Bore's sugar plantation, right? You know, across the street with Audubon Park there. And what made me, I believe, start thinking about this, I recall walking around Paris, which is obviously a very historic city. And you'll see randomly here and there plaques on the walls that not only talk about the history of the building or the history of the site, but some of the, the ones that really strike me are the ones that commemorate someone being assassinated by the Nazis during the occupation or the ones, there are big blue ones on schools that always give me chills because they tell you the number of Jewish children that were taken out of that school and sent to the to the camps. And, and it occurred to me that walking through the French Quarter, for example, there there is no plaque on any of the, the buildings that will tell you how many people might have been enslaved in that in that building. And I think that if we had that kind of visual representation of what that urban slavery looked like in the city, not only in the French Quarter, but in other parts of the city, I think people would be astonished at how very prevalent it was and how we we consume those spaces without ever ever understanding what was what was happening in them and you know and there's a there's a conscious decision that people will make not to visit a plantation for example because of the difficult history attached to it but they will without even realizing or knowing it have coffee in a french quarter courtyard or sleep in a bed and breakfast in the city in what were slave quarters um, right literally slave quarters yeah. and um i'm 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 trying to figure out how to how to better articulate that and how i mean is there do you think that there is a way for us to responsibilize in some way the the city or the state to talk more openly ab about that because you know in in the 
they're, they're, again, we have a responsibility as plantations. Obviously, there's an expectation that we will talk about slavery, right? That that it it is mentioned in our brochures, it's mentioned on our websites that there's this full transparency about what the the site is, but. We'll see uh, ads for the state. We see tourism ads for New Orleans, and none of that history is is mentioned. So, as a as a historian working in Treme, as a historian working at the at the African American Museum there in in the city, and at the Herman Grimma House, is there? I mean, do you think that there's a way to to push that conversation and to to bring that conversation forward to, again, in some way, responsibilize the the marketing machine to talk about it hmm. yeah good, good question um i i think there that more and more of that is forthcoming so for instance there are more markers that have gone up in the french quarter you know that um tell us the history of the slave trade and you know keep key places where difficult histories have taken place. So I think about, for instance, the um, Ma'afa ceremony that occurs in July. Um, every July, around July 4th weekend, there is a, a large Ma'afa ceremony that leaves Congo Square, gathers in Congo Square, and it's a, a huge mass of people. Um, and Ma'afa is referring to the the, the tr tragedy of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, and so that procession begins in Congo Square and then processes to different sites like the Tomb of the Unknown Slave, you know. Um, it's at, yeah. um, there's a marker now for Solomon Northup on Esplanade, um, you know, and other various sites until you get to the river. And then, of course, the river is kind of you know, it's literally and symbolically um, remembering those who were brought against their will um, to the shores of New Orleans. And so that um, very um, physically takes you from one site to the other and the significance of each of those sites. Most of those sites are actually labeled. Um, and having that kind of procession and physically being part of that every year um, is a way of kind of marking with the body that, you know, this history is real and it's shaped, it's shaped um, this city and it helps us to continue to have those conversations. Of course, it's a very self-selected group who's going to go on a off a procession, right? It's, it's not going to be your typical everyday people. And in addition, you know, even places like the Herman Grima House, the vast majority of visitors are not locals. Something like 85 to 90% are not locals. Oh, no, and so, we can we can certainly say that about the, the, the plantations out along the river as well. Yeah, exactly. And so then you have to really ask yourself, well, okay. <laughs> and, and this seems to be in line with, with what I hear from from people working at other historic sites in, in across the country that is usually not local. So that means people go through the trouble to travel clear across the country to visit historic sites, someone else's historic sites, but don't go to the ones in their own 
community. Huh, that's very interesting. Now, I one could say, well, you're just busy, you're working your everyday life. There, there's something to that. Um, but on the other hand, it, it, it's a very curious thing, right? And it means, it really militates uh, against us knowing the deep history of where we live and what shaped us. And it works against us having these conversations. So there, there's something going on, you know, kind of at multiple levels here. Yes, we can do it. And in, in many cases, we actually do have a good amount of historical markers and historic sites. But if we're not going to visit them when we live there, well, you know, that that's that's really a problem. That's an excellent point. It's an excellent point. And I, I I can say the same thing about myself. I mean, there there are lots of people. I mean, there are lots of places that I should already have gone in Louisiana that I haven't I haven't gone. I haven't been to the Herman Grimmer House in a number of years. I there are, there are lots of places I haven't visited because I think that's just sort of human nature as well. That you'll uh, how many people in Paris have never been to the Eiffel Tower? Uh, it's a lot, you know, because it's there and it's in front of them, and they'll travel across the world to go do something else. I think that's just kind right. of human nature. Another of the things that I wanted to chat with you about that came up during some of the discussions uh, at the colloquium in, in Bordeaux, when we talk with, with international historians who are in Canada, in France, or places like that, where there tends to be a better sort of financing for higher education and also for historic research and for preservation projects, uh, for historic sites, we don't have those kind of funding mechanisms in the United States. And it sometimes becomes difficult for our colleagues and peers from other places to understand the difficulties that we have in the United States to maintain these places, to generate visitation and things like that. And these different economic models that we have to try to come up with to to, um, to to do the historic preservation for these buildings, uh, for slave cabins, for places like that. Because if we're not generating revenue to do that, not only to maintain the, 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 the sites themselves, but also to do the research and all of that, the stories aren't being told. Um, as, as an academic working sort of on both sides in the, in the university sector, but also working with historic sites. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And sometimes this, this, um, this, this, the reconciliation perhaps of the idea that paying admissions to plantations further exploits enslaved people with the need to generate revenues to keep them going so the stories can be told. Mm -hmm. It's a really tricky one. Um, and it makes it so hard to tell the history the way you think it needs to be told when you are also reliant on tourism revenues. So you you, you will always have a self-selected group of people who will say, go to a Whitney plantation, right? And who are, are willing and ready to have um, a tour that's gonna really focus on the enslaved and their perspective. But that's not the vast majority of Americans. And so you end up in a situation where, well, you know, you have to be real about consumer demand, right? And 
consumer demand and academic history telling don't go very well together, right? Because if you, you know, if you are constantly having to think about now, how is this going to play in the market? You're already compromised. You're irretrievably compromised as soon as that's, that's how you're going to have to think about it. And so, yes, it really does come down to a question of what are our national and local priorities um, around history and around getting the history right and preserving these places just because they are a cultural and historical commons, right? That's how I would think of them, a cultural and historical commons. It should not be a matter of interesting, you know, trying to get private foundations and donors to um, rehabilitate slave quarters. You know, shame on us. We should be trying to preserve um, slave quarters or, you know, other places that are significant, especially when we, you know, the slave quarters are in short supply. Um, and, and so you would want to preserve something that precious that has such a painful, but also such an important history, you know? So it's a painful history, yes, but it's a history nonetheless of, of people who gave their blood, sweat and tears to build the country. Um, and so it's, it's very, very important to have that. Um, so it, it's, I, unfortunately, I don't see anything changing in the near or even the distant future given our love of privatization and decentralization. <laughs> so. Understood. I was hoping you were going to have the magic bullet there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you're, the, you're the star of the show tonight. You're supposed <laughs> to have all the answers. You're supposed to have all of the answers. Um, you uh, mentioned something in that, um, in this last segment about, the education system. And I know that you also do a lot of K-12 work in addition to your university work. Um, another of the things that I observe, and I, I don't know if I'm putting my finger directly on this, really, I, I know that we've seen a, a big move toward toward focusing K-12 education almost exclusively on STEM with uh, our arts and humanities and history programs sort of falling to the wayside and you as a concert cellist you as a as a historian um you see the the effects of that would you agree that that is also creating a population or or a rising population of of americans that that is going to be completely disconnected from from our history and and who will be less and less consumers of, of these kinds of places? That's a good question. I don't know. I hope not. But um, so I would say this. When I think about the education system and especially K-12, I tend to think, well, but also I'll, I'll include college there because we've got a a scandalously declining number of history majors 
I mean, just decimated. <laughs> just really well, and languages really are the awful. languages are the same and, way. And languages too. Um, and not to mention one of my pet peeves is the fact that most of our schools don't teach cursive writing anymore. And so who's going to do the archival research? <laughs> because they did not, you know, print in the, the way that um, most of our students are confined to doing now. And so if you can't read cursive. You sound very Gen X in this. Well, I'm just <laughs> going to say, though. I agree like, with you. It'd be like finding a whole group of hieroglyphics. What what was that? Exactly. You know, it's, it's a it's a scary thought. And of course, I guess you can take a crash course in cursive writing and I suppose in graduate school or whatever. But I have actually heard, you know, people who are working with today's graduate students in history were saying these folks can't read cursive. Wow. And they're in graduate school studying history. Yes. It is already upon us. Um, so th there are a number of ramifications, everything from handwriting to um, declining focus on history and the humanities. All of this works together to kind of continually chip away, right? And there's more and more of a focus on the technical and on the scientific, you know, look at our, our whole, you know, conversation around AI now, and you won't even need to know how to write, right? You, right. You just, Tell the thing to write you the essay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and my colleagues are are currently involved in conversations about, well, you know, we got to get on the AI bandwagon because they're going to use it anyway. So let's figure out how to use it to our advantage. So I I am not going with the program, Joseph. I um I believe in handwriting <laughs> and you know, I am not interested in AI. Um, I have had a couple of people suggest that I play around with it and I'm just sort of completely hands off with it. I, I, I don't know if it scares me. I don't know what it is about it, but there's something, and I know eventually at some point I'm going to not necessarily have to embrace it, but have to explore it and understand it better. But for mm -hmm. now I'm, I'm staying a little bit away from it. Um, you mentioned the importance of slave cabins. And as you know, um, Alcée Fortier back in the late 19th century was going around in St. James Parish, maybe even at Laura in the slave cabins, collecting these folk tales of Compère Lapin and the Compère Bouquis, which uh, are sort of a gateway into Creole Louisiana, into African influences in our in our way of life, in our language, in our food ways, and all of all of those things. Um, and I know that you have said to me in in offline conversations the importance of keeping that as part of our narrative of Louisiana. I'd like for you to to share your thoughts about that if you would. Certainly. So this is incredibly precious, right? Because this connects us directly to, for, for people of African descent, connects us directly back to the various African societies and cultures that we came from. Um, and particularly in the United States, where it's not always 
as easy to see those direct connections as say in a place like Haiti, where, you know, the, there's still um, so much of the imprint of practices that are so discernibly African in Haiti. It's not to say that we don't have them in the United States because we do. You still see that in in music and modes of speaking and so on. So I'm not saying it's not there, um, but the, it's it's not quite as heavy an imprint as it is in a place like Haiti. These stories, however, Comper Lapin, Rear Rabbit, um, those um, show us the the dissemination across the Atlantic of this culture coming to us. And it's important that we we teach and hand that on because, you know, I think that there are many people, they may have heard of Br'er Rabbit, but they don't know that there's a connection to the African continent with that. Um, I don't think I knew that um, until I started doing this kind of research, right? It's not something where I just grew up knowing of the African connection, and I could just take it for granted. And while there's been, you know, incredible progress on many fronts for, you know, issues of race in the United States, it still remains the case that to grow up Black in America is to grow up, you know, at, um, with an understanding that one is going to be assumed to be less beautiful, less smart, you know, to have made less of a contribution to the culture and so on and so forth. It, it just, it, it's still the case today. There, there's a kind of um, mental burden, if you would say, that e even if you are Black, middle-class, well-educated, you know, I know from raising daughters in the society it's still there that there, there's still a sense of I'm not as pretty as, you know, as, you know, whatever, you know, fill in the blank. And of course you work to overcome that as a parent, but in light of that, it's incredibly important to have that history of where we having, we have contributed in so many ways that we just have not gotten credit for to the American experience, to American culture. And these stories, again, are such a direct linkage back to the continent. Um, I recall that there was a school that I was working with, um, a K-12 school, and they had proposed that part of their curriculum would be the Uncle Remus stories. So the school board that was going to determine whether or not the, the charter was going to be accepted because it was a charter school said, you know, this is a racist curriculum. You've got Uncle Remus in here. You know, you're going to be serving largely black and brown students. You know, this is just um, further proof of why your school is not needed in this community. And so what I said to this school, I said, you know, first of all, you need to get a different <laughs> you know, a different version of these stories. Like you don't want the, the old fashioned Uncle Remus stories. That's just bad news. But you have to be smart about it. Like the African history is absolutely crucial to teach children. But th I mean, there are better versions. There are better translations. There are many African-American storytellers who have come along and who have really worked to retrieve the best of that tradition and to, to take it out of that, you know, kind of very patronizing white supremacist frame 
And but the problem is they didn't know that history either. Um, and, and so the, the school board doesn't know of it. And, and so rather than them saying, well, you've got, you know, a bad version, this is an important history, but you need to choose something that's going to be much better, you know. Um, and the the school, they didn't realize it either. They didn't even know there was a connection back to the African continent. And so I said, oh, don't take it out, but you need to reform how you're doing it. This is incredibly important for students of every background to know. And so, so that's why I'm so passionate about it because it's another one of these kind of hidden in plain sight that you don't even realize the richness of the, the African, African-American connections. Well, and what you're saying there is that it's that the way the history has been presented is double stacked against any African influenced or, or African origin kinds of things being, being taught in curricula or being brought forth because there's the, uh, the sort of racist overlay of what people don't understand. And so you're, you're constantly trying to fight it on both sides to get people to understand that, you know, these are, these are significant stories and how to make them, how to make them relevant and how to make them pertinent. Because I think that's part of it as well, because people do associate Comper Lapin with Uncle Remus and immediately assume that they're racist stories and don't go deeper. And so they've sort of fallen out of the, the, the spotlight or out of people's line of vision. And then there's a whole re-education that has to be done to make them, to make them relevant. So. Yep, <laughs> exactly. So much work to be done. <laughs> so much work Indeed. to be done. Well, I think that we have covered a whole lot of ground this evening, and I cannot thank you enough for giving me this hour to chat about all these things that are important to both of us. And uh, I hope that you will you will join us again, and that you know if you will keep me updated about what you're doing in your research, what you're discovering, and I'd love to have you back out to Laura at some point, mm-hmm. um, maybe. Uh, you know, give us some some ideas and insights about how we can do some things a little bit better out there because we're in the process right now of doing a, a script rewrite and wow. it's exciting. It's exciting, but the the challenge, Angel, is we have so much information. Mm. And how do you take this whole corpus of thousands of pages and all of these? diverse and rich stories and whittle them down into bite-sized pieces for visitors to get through in in an hour or in in an hour and 15 minutes it's that's the biggest challenge wow that's the biggest challenge and you know we're we're really really lucky i mean as you know doing the research that you do that you know this this french and spanish past that we have in louisiana gives us access to incredible records that oftentimes aren't found in other parts of of the quote-unquote american south these notorial archives the catholic church archives and so 
the African history in Louisiana is so rich, and this Creole history in Louisiana is so rich. And I didn't even mention that it's Creole Heritage Month. So mm -hmm. this is fitting right in with the thematic of the yes. of the month. Um, so yeah, again, thank you so much and uh, stay in touch. And I hope that I'll see you again soon sometime here in New Orleans or somewhere else and have a great evening. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be with you. Take good care. Bye. All right. Goodbye.